have your Bibles, would you turn with me back to Matthew chapter 27, please, to that chapter we were looking at earlier. Matthew chapter 27. Verse 35 says, then they crucified him. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for your help to understand your word, to take it in tonight, to see what our Saviour has done for us and his greatness. And we give you praise in Jesus' name for him. Amen. One of the things I've been doing in anticipation of the coronation is reading up a little bit about the previous King Charles's. Charles I and Charles II, and I was reminded about King Charles II. After King Charles I, the only uh, British monarch to be executed was uh, beheaded by uh, Oliver Cromwell's uh, government or parliament, well not just his government, but he was acting as uh, Lord Protector for the parliament. His uh, son uh, fled to France and his son was uh, in exile. But there came a time when he came back and he wanted to muster an army and take over the government of the country again, come to London and claim the crown. So with the help of the Scots, he built an army and they came down to Worcester, where we were just recently, and uh, they fought the roundheads of the parliament, the cavaliers who were with um, King Charles II came and fought uh, to conquer and to try and gain the crown. Well, they lost the battle. Uh, Oliver Cromwell's men were twice as many in number and they made short work of their army and the king had to run into hiding. And he took exile, well, took in, went into hiding with a royalist family by the name of the Giffords. And I used to know some people called the Giffords, and now I'll be able to say if ever I see them again. Oh, I wonder if your name is historical uh, with these people. But they were royalist supporters, and they took him in, and they cut his hair, they blackened his face with, with dirt, and they put his uh, royal clothes away, and they, they gave him some servant's clothes, and they disguised him so that he could make his journey to safety again. Cromwell had his army out searching everywhere for them and the king had to get away as quickly as he could, going in disguise. And as he went, he ran into some of Cromwell's men and you will remember the famous story how he climbed an oak tree and he was in the oak tree and Cromwell's men were searching in the bushes down below, right beneath him, but they never looked up and saw him in the tree. And so King Charles II survived by being in a tree. They didn't see the king in the tree. And we have endless pubs called the Royal Oak. We've got one in, in Bath, haven't we? Uh, because of the truth of this story. Well, I want to talk to us tonight uh, from Matthew 27 about the king on the tree. Because they didn't see the king on the tree when it was the Lord Jesus Christ, a far more noble king than King Charles II. And in Matthew 27, we have the account of the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, one of the things that Matthew's gospel is about, is about 
explaining the kingship of Jesus. It begins with the wise men, the Magi, coming, saying, where is he who is born king of the Jews? And it sets out his royal claim to the crown of David. And uh, we have the family tree of the line of David in chapter 1, and we have the, uh, the king's uh, uh, justification and verification for claiming that crown, and his announcement of his kingdom in, this chap- in these earlier chapters of Matthew. And Matthew's great purpose is to preach the king of the Jews. But you know what, if you say to any Jewish person today, you know, Jesus is the king of the Jews, they'll laugh in your face. You know why? They'll say, well, if he's the king of the Jews, where's his kingdom? Because the Old Testament was full of promises, like the ones we were looking at last week about the millennial kingdom, which the Messiah would set up, a utopia on earth. And they take all those things literally, just as we do, uh, uh, and uh, that he would have a kingdom on earth. So where is his kingdom? And Matthew's gospel not only shows Christ's right to have that claim, but he shows why the kingdom was postponed. And it was because of the rejection of Israel and how they turned their back on him. They didn't see the king, and so they crucified him. And that's the climax we come to in Matthew 27, verses 33 to 50. And I thought it would be good for us to see this tonight. We've had communion, we've had a coronation, and it brings these things together to remind us of the Lord Jesus, the king on the tree. And we'll see his saving work, which was the reason for the postponement of his kingdom. And I want us to see these four things here uh, that they didn't see were happening there that day. They didn't see the victory of the cross. They didn't see the value of the Christ. They didn't see the virtue of the crucified. They didn't see the vicarious crucifixion. And uh, those are the four things that I'm going to draw out of these verses, which have so many wonderful things hidden in them. I could preach on this for a few weeks. But first of all, let's see what they didn't see, the victory of the cross. If you look in verse 33, it says, And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Now, the uh, Romans, who were acting on behalf uh, of Pontius Pilate, who had been instructed by the Jewish people to crucify Christ, they brought Jesus to this place called Golgotha. And Golgotha is its, uh, is its Hebrew Aramaic name. Uh, we know it more by its Latin name, Calvary, Calvaria. Uh, but it's the Latin name is based on, on this name. And the word Golgotha uh, is, is a, a word which is a description of this place. Um, and it's... Well, I don't want to say what my answer is at the the moment, but it it is, as it says there, the place of the skull. In in the Greek, it is the word cranium for skull, and topon for place, it's the place of the skull, the cranium. Now, there's something interesting about this. They brought Jesus to die here. It doesn't say it was a hill. There's nowhere in the Bible that says it was a hill, but... Jerusalem is all on hills, so it it was on a hill. Uh, And there's something in that, in the Bible, that when somebody dies on a hill, normally it's an act of negative judgment. So, for instance, when Aaron died, he had to go up Mount Hor. 
and he died and his, his priestly robes were passed on to Eliezer, his successor. When Moses had struck the rock, he went up Mount Nebo and he died and that's where he died. When King Saul rebelled against God, he died on Mount Gilboa and here's the Lord Jesus Christ dying on this hill called Golgotha. It looks like it's an act of judgment. But actually what they don't see is that it is an act of victory. It's a victorious thing that is happening here. Now, the place of the skull gets its name uh, from something that happened here. Most people think the name, the place of the skull, is because it looks like a skull. And it does. I'm not going to deny that. Uh, it looks physically like a skull. You can see at certain times of the day when the shadows are the strongest, the face of the skull. We think these caves were Jeremiah's grotto, where Jeremiah sat and watched the destruction of Jerusalem and wept over Jerusalem, we think. Um, but uh, that's where a lot of people think the name, the place of the skull is from. But I want to tell you that I think there is a very strong link to something else that shows that this was actually a very important place in Old Testament history. Do you remember in 1 Samuel 17 when King David fought Goliath? And he went to battle against the Philistine giant and with his sling he brought down the, uh, the giant Goliath. And with one stone, although he had five, he uh, won the victory over this giant. Do you remember what he did then? Most people don't. That's where the story ends as far as they're concerned. But what it says in the Bible he did was he drew Goliath's sword, a massive sword. And I'm sorry to be graphic, but it's what the Bible says. He cut his head off. He executed his head. And then the army went off into battle. But what did David do? Well, in 1 Samuel 17, verse 46, it says, And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. Did you ever notice that part of the story before? David brought the head of Goliath to Jerusalem and uh, he buried it there. And I believe that's where Jesus died, on the hill, the place of the skull. You see, why was David doing that? Why did David take the skull to Jerusalem? The reason is this. The whole business of the Philistine army trying to destroy the Jews, the whole business of the giants especially, not just Goliath, but all the giants historically, was a demonic attempt to try and destroy the Jews and ultimately to stop the Messiah from coming. And when the Lord Jesus Christ came and he died on the cross. He overcame all the victory, all the effort of the enemy beforehand to stop him coming to be the saviour. And when that cross was put up on that hill, most people never thought twice about it. But it was a victory. It was a victory. And the victory of the cross was proclaimed there. They gave him wine vinegar mingled with gall to drink to try and uh, uh, deaden the pain. And, and that's one purpose for the wine vinegar there. Uh, but when he tasted it, he didn't want to drink it because he wanted to take on full the suffering of the cross. Because he had come here for this purpose, to die for our sins. And so his victory 
was seen in that triumph over that historical working of the enemy. I don't know about you, but that just excites me and thrills me to think of the victory of the cross. And tonight we rejoice in this Lord Jesus Christ and in what he was able to accomplish. Praise his name. Second thing they didn't see was they didn't see the value of the Christ. In verse 35... It says, then they crucified him. And you've got to admire Matthew's simplicity of words here. You know, most people today, modern writers today, if they were describing the crucifixion, like when you see most films about the crucifixion, they go into all the gory details. But Matthew never does. He doesn't need to play on our emotions. He just states the facts and he says they crucified him. And uh, he, he makes it clear what happened. And it says... And they, being the Romans, divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now this is one of Matthew's 11 formulas of fulfillment, as they're called uh, among scholars. Formulas of fulfillment, where he gives an event and then he says, this fulfilled this prophecy. Now, these aren't the only things that Jesus fulfilled, but these are the ones Matthew highlights. And he highlights this gambling over the garments of Jesus uh, because it fulfilled a statement prophesied in Psalm 22 that they would do this very thing. And you have to see it as an amazing event, isn't it? The fulfillment of this prophecy. Because uh, Jesus, you know, you could say some things, Jesus, oh, he just made that happen. But I can't make you do things unless I'm God. And uh, these things here that happened here, they happened because God was fulfilling prophecy. And when those men gambled for Jesus' clothes... They were fulfilling the very words of scripture. Uh, They divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. But I I, I don't want to worry too much about the fulfillment, although the fulfillment is glorious. But I want us to think a moment about those soldiers there that day who were blind to the king on the tree. You know, they were looking down at their dice. They weren't looking up at the cross. And you know, that's a a terrible thing, isn't it? And this is sadly uh, what gambling does. And it's it's one of the sins that we we perhaps are are less uh, attuned to than uh, perhaps we should do. Because gambling is actually a, a major sin which is on the rise in our nation. And it's especially on the rise among the young people. Here's a newspaper heading that will shock you perhaps. 500,000 children are gambling every week that's online on on computers or they're going into uh, places where like at service stations they have machines they can use we have a gambling epidemic in our nation as we do in the world do you know in 2022 in america They had the biggest lottery ever. Something called the Mega Millions Lottery had over a billion pound jackpot last year in 2022. They said the queues outside shops to get tickets were huge. Because everybody wanted that money. And you know what? When you've got your eyes fixed on the prize and you, you see pound signs before you, you don't see anything else, do you? 
You're blind to everything else. And this is what was happening here uh, with these men. Think about it. Here they were gambling for clothes. Second-hand clothes. From what they considered was a, a crucified criminal. And yet they were blind because they were looking down at their dice and looking at their, their lottery rather than looking up at the saviour and taking in, like the centurion later did, uh, his saving work. What a warning that is for all of us about gambling, how it can blind us to spiritual things, how it makes us think of the things of time rather than the things of eternity, how it makes us think of the things of the body rather than the things of the soul, uh, things that will really matter. You know, those soldiers are dead now. Whoever won those garments, they're, they're long gone. But if they'd had Christ, they would have had eternal life. How they now, in hell, must be kicking themselves. What a fool I was. I was so close, I could have called on him. Save me, like the thief did uh, on the cross. I could have called on him, he was so close. And I was more worried about our stupid game of dice. They were blinded to the value of the Christ. You know, this can happen to so many of us, can't it, in different ways. Let me tell you the story of a man called Gladius. Gladius was married to Louisa. Uh, They came from India originally to Singapore and eventually moved to England. And Louisa is a Christian. Uh, Gladius wasn't. Uh, I don't know how Louisa became a Christian, whether she was saved after marrying him or what. But uh, Gladius was a gambler, but he was a secret gambler. But he was gambling away their money. And one day he actually had the courage to tell his wife. He said it was probably the hardest thing he ever had to do. And uh, he thought that he, the only way out for him was to commit suicide, which is sadly how so many feel when they are addicted to gambling. You know what she did? She had the wisdom to say to him, what you need is the Lord. And she gave him a Bible. And her mother, I think it was, who was a Christian as well, uh, prayed with them for him to see the truth. And he started reading the Bible. He said these words. He said, I had been searching for something. I had tried Buddhism, but it did not give me the answers that I was really looking for. My wife and other friends then led me to the Bible. And as I read it, I began to take it seriously. It became alive to me. As I read it, I saw myself. And I saw that with the help of Jesus Christ, I could be completely changed. Wonderful testimony. And he was beautifully saved by the grace of God. Friend, if your eyes are on other things, if you're blinded to the value of Christ for some material thing in this world, it may not have to be gambling, it could be something else, it can be your job or something else that's just your fixation, then wake up. Wake up. Christ is about eternity, about your soul, about the greatest, most precious thing you have. You know, Leon Bloor, who was the greatest gambler uh, in modern history, they asked him once, what's the secret of great gambling? And he said this, he said, never gamble what you can't afford to lose. And I want to tell you, if if you're not in Christ yet, you're gambling what you can't afford to lose. You're gambling your soul. So come to Christ And put your trust in him. 
The third thing they were blind to that day was the virtue of the crucified one. Because verse 36 says, sitting down, they kept watch over him there. And they put up over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Now, it's interesting to see the body language in all that's going on here. If you trace the body language through this, we see those who are sitting in verse 36, those who are passing by in verse 38, and then round the corner uh, in my Bible on the next page, uh, we see those who stood there in verse 47. But they're, they're not taking seriously uh, who the Lord Jesus is. But they still put a sign up that Pontius Pilate has had made with the accusation written against him. Now, this is why they put on what the, on the cross uh, what the criminal had done. And by the way, this shows us the type of cross that Jesus was crucified on. He wasn't crucified on a T, which it was a famous Roman execution uh, uh, symbol, but he was on a cross cross. It had a headpiece above his head. And uh, the accusation was put there, this is Jesus the king of the Jews. It actually uses his name. There's only three times his name is used in this passage. In verse 37, where he's crucified. In verse 46, where he cried out. And verse 50, where he cries out again. Each one is making a statement. But it's saying he is the king of the Jews. Now, I wonder if you've ever realized the significance of that phrase, the king of the Jews. Because, you see, that phrase is a royal title and they understood it as that that's why they rejected him uh, and they said to Pilate we have no king but Caesar what an awful thing to say especially if you were online this morning and you heard how in the law God had said in Deuteronomy uh, 17 that they weren't to have a foreigner rule over them Uh, they said we have no king but Caesar well they rejected Jesus as their king but you know this is also a divine title In Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 6, the Lord says this, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Did you hear that? Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel. The Lord is the King of Israel. And he's, he's called the king of the Jews here. And later on in the passage, they say, if he's the king of Israel. So they connect the two as being the same. And it was a divine title. But I don't think they saw the deity of Christ in who he was hanging there. Neither did they see the value in who he was. And we can pick this out by the things that they said and the things that Jesus said. In verse 38, we're told that the two robbers were crucified with him. I find it interesting it says, verse 38, then two robbers, as if Jesus was put on the cross first and longest, and then they were put up next to him. And then they were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads. By the way, that's a fulfillment of Psalm 22 and Psalm 109, which said prophetically they would shake their heads at him. They, they blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself if you are the cr- son of God, come down from the cross. 
Likewise, the chief priests, also mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. So they're mocking him about this claim, the king of the Jews. They see it's a title, an important title, but they don't believe it's true about the Lord Jesus Christ. But it is true. And he had the power to do these very things. Notice they accuse him of, uh, of the resurrection. Because in verse 40 he said you destroy the temple and build it in three days. That's from John's gospel, John chapter 2. And uh, they'd taken on board that fact that he had made that claim. But they were expecting him to do it then and there rather than in a few days time. Which they were going to be surprised about. They said save yourself. And both groups said this, save yourself. Isn't that a, a, a thing? That to say to the Lord Jesus, save yourself on the cross. He was saving us. And as uh, the founder of the Salvation Army, William Booth, said, you know, if he'd come down off that cross, they would have believed in him. But we believe in him because he stayed there. He stayed there to die for us. But I love the accusations they make against him. You say, you love them? Yes, I do. Because it's amazing. They can't find bad things to say about Jesus. They can only say the most wonderful things. Look what they say in verse 42. He saved others. Himself he cannot save. Now, think about that. What an accusation. He saved others. He did save others. He saved the woman, didn't he, who was brought to his feet in John chapter 8, caught in the act of adultery. He'd saved them, her from them, stoning him, stoning her. He saved others. What an accusation. What truth, what virtue. And verse 43, he trusted in God. What an accusation. I thought that's what we're meant to be doing. <laughs> and this is the chief priest. You trusted in God. You know, but that's what they're, they're saying. And that's actually a quotation from Psalm 22 without them knowing it, that they would say that. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. So they were blind to the virtue of the crucified one. And they mocked him with their blasphemies instead. You know, this is actually the central part of this passage. I've often shown you these before, but uh, a lot of Bible passages have what's called a chiasm, a, a symmetry structure to it. And if you look at this passage, it is a symmetry. Uh, you'll notice that we had uh, the wine vinegar given him in verse 34, and the wine vinegar just before he says the last cry at the end down here. There's a prophecy about the lots and the casting of the gambling for his clothes and there's another prophecy towards the end in verse 46 for when he cries out my God my God why have you forsaken me taken from Psalm 22 there's a sign above his head which is a sign on earth this is Jesus in a minute there's going to be a sign from heaven when the sky goes black a sign from God and then you've got these two word verses about the robbers and in the middle the blasphemies Shows the structure of this and how important these events are of the blasphemy. And how it must have hurt the Lord Jesus Christ that they were blind to who he was and what he was doing out of love for them. 
how they were blinded to him. One group spoke directly to him and said, if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. The other group talked about him, if he is. And uh, I don't know which is more painful to be spoken of or spoken to in a cruel way. But Jesus had it both. You know, there's a, a story about Amy Carmichael, the missionary to India, who who founded a an orphanage for Indian girls who were uh, little girls who were taken into prostitution. And she rescued these girls and she nurtured them, uh, taught them the gospel. They came to faith, she nurtured them and looked after them. But there was one young girl in that group who rebelled hard against everything that Amy tried to do in that, in that orphanage. And she kicked and kicked and kicked and kicked against everything she tried to do. And Amy was at her wit's end. And one occasion, after a particularly bad episode, Amy was talking to her, and she did a very shocking thing. She picked up a needle, the girls had been doing sewing, and she said, do you know what your rebellion is like to me? It's like this. And she stabbed the needle into her arm and blood came out it hurts me like that and the little girl when she saw it she burst into tears and she said I am sorry I didn't mean to do that to you I didn't know and it had an impact on her but you know what when the Lord Jesus was dying on the cross he was saying "This, this is what this is to me your, your rejection of me hurts me for what I am and what I've come to do to you, to, for you, to save you. Dear friend, don't reject the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't think Christ is without feelings. It's possible to grieve the Holy Spirit because God has feelings. You can only grieve someone who has feelings and has love. And uh, the, the, the feelings of Christ towards you are great. He loves you and wants you to be saved. Don't reject him and don't hurl the rejection of blasphemy back in his face. <coughs> Excuse me. The final thing uh, that they didn't see here was his vicarious crucifixion. Uh, they saw his crucifixion, but they didn't understand the vicarious nature of his death on the cross. Now, what do we mean by vicarious? You know what a vicar is, don't you? You say, oh yeah, it's a man who goes to church and wears a white collar back to front and uh, he dresses up in a girl's nightie and he stands up in the front and gives the sermon. No, that's not a vicar, that's a blasphemer. That's a blasphemer. A vicar is somebody who goes between. That's what the word vicar means. And no human being other than the Lord Jesus Christ can be your vicar. That's why it's total blasphemy when a pope says he's the vicar of Christ. He's not. That's a blasphemy. A vicar is a go-between God and man. And his death on the cross was a vicarious crucifixion. He was paying the price for our sin. And therefore, God's judgment was upon him. And this was seen in the events at the close of this this crucifixion time uh, in verse 45 now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour there was darkness over all the land it's strange you know jesus was on the cross from uh, the third hour to the, tw- uh, the, the for six hours altogether uh, uh, from the third hour 
right the way through to the ninth hour. And uh, it was a time of two halves. The first half was in daylight, but the second half was in darkness. And darkness came over all the world. Uh, we, we know that, strangely enough, because it, we have historical records of other places in the Roman Empire where darkness also came. It's interesting, Tertullian, who wrote at the second century, said, At the moment of Christ's death, the light departed from the sun and the land was darkened at noonday. Which wonder is relative in your own annals. In other words, he's writing this to the Romans in your own annals and is preserved in your archives to this day. It was in other countries that this darkness was also seen. God put the world into darkness when Jesus died on the cross. Why? What happened in in that middle point? In that middle point, the Lord Jesus became the sin offering. He had fulfilled the other sacrifices of the burnt offering and so on before. But now he becomes the sin offering for us. And he takes the judgment of God. And the darkness comes over Calvary as as if God was painting a picture to let us see. Isaac Watts said, well might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in when Christ the mighty maker died for man the creature's sin. And when he came to the end of those last three hours in darkness, in verse 46, it says, And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the Lord Jesus was quoting Psalm 22 there, and he was saying, it was like God had forsaken him on the cross. Now some tried to draw doctrine from this and said, ah, here we have the breaking of the Trinity. Well, I want to tell you, you will never break the Trinity. It's an eternal union between Father, Son and Holy Spirit. But what you have is not a breaking of the relationship, but a breaking of the fellowship. Because when the Lord Jesus became sin for us, he was broken in fellowship from the Father And that is why he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Think of that. Think of what it meant for the Lord Jesus to be cut off from God the Father. The Father was everything to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it was one thing to be cut off from his friends, his disciples. They had betrayed him and run away. It was one thing to be cut off from Judas who had betrayed him. It was one thing to be cut off from his own people, the Jewish people, but to be cut off from his father, that was the worst thing he could go through. And he was alienated as he bore the judgment of our sin on the cross. He was forsaken so that we don't have to be. When he went on the cross, what he went through on the cross was like going through hell on the cross. It was like going through hell on the cross for you and for me so that we don't have to. And uh, it it was an awesome moment of salvation work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, And what we have here is something that the world was blinded to. 
They couldn't see it. All they could see was a man dying. In fact, they were confused by his words. Verse 47. Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, this man is calling for Elijah. Now, why did they say that? Because the first two words Jesus cried out uh, are two words in Hebrew, Eli, Eli. And they're the, the beginning of the name Elijah. And it's actually the name God. El is the name God. But they heard it meaning Elijah and they thought he was calling for Elijah. Elijah was supposed to come at Passover in Jewish tradition, so they thought he's calling for Elijah. And immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. Uh, And they were hoping to see something happen, melodramatic. But what they saw was... The end of the crucifixion, verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Jesus bore our sin in full to the very end. Now he didn't understand it. They were blind. And I wonder if you're blind to it too. I wonder if you're blind to why Jesus died on the cross. A lot of people think Jesus died to show us love. Or he died there to show us how a good man dies. You know, he died as a martyr or something like that. He died there to be our substitute. You know, it's interesting. There are seven sayings that Christ made on the cross. And the one in verse 46 is the middle saying. Out of the seven sayings, it's the middle, the fourth saying. And do you know what the middle word of the middle saying is? Why? My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? This is why Jesus was dying. The why is the question. He was dying to be our vicarious substitute. Dying on our behalf. Paying the price for our sin. I was looking at some old things on uh, news uh, back in the 80s. I'm an 80s child. And I remember this story. I wonder how many of you remember this story. In 1982, a plane... uh, took off from Washington, D.C., the airport there, in winter, in January. And like they get their very strong winters, the engines, I think, froze. And it crashed into the the river Potomac. And there was a huge rescue operation, as you can imagine, to try and get the people out of the freezing cold water uh, from when that plane crashed. And I remember this on the news, and I was so pleased to find this just recently, um, because I remember, so, so there was one guy, you had, I mean, in those days, only the rich had these big video cameras, you know. We then later all got them for our holidays, but in those days, uh, only the rich had them, you know. And there was this guy, he videoed what happened. There was a man, I think he was a fireman, And he pulled over his car onto the side of the freeway and he just selflessly dived off the edge into the freezing cold water. And he swam out to the plane and he brought back, I think he brought back a child. And then he dived back in, and this is freezing cold water, swam out again and brought back, I think it was another child, I think he brought back four people altogether. And he brought back uh, two children and their mother, and I think he brought back someone else. And then he went in again, and he was never seen again. 
When they held his funeral, and I remember waiting for this to come up on the news, and it came up about two weeks later, I thought, I hope they show the funeral, because I'd like to know about that man. I was only 12 years old, but I remember this. And the woman at the funeral said these words, and I've remembered them to this day, with all the cameras, all the press there to see this. She said, to you all, he was a hero. But to me and my family... He was a saviour. And I want to say that about the Lord Jesus Christ tonight. As we've read about Jesus' death on the cross and all he went through, there's a lot of people in this world who say, oh, that's a wonderful man. What a hero. But to me, he's my saviour. Is he yours? If he isn't, put your trust in him tonight. He came to die on the cross for your sins to give eternal life for you. Don't be blind to the king on the tree who came for you. Turn to him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Let's sing our